Welcome to The Self-Made Theory. The podcast that's all about innovating, overcoming and prospering. We interview founders, entrepreneurs, innovators, CEOs and other exciting people about their amazing business journey. Over to your host, Ben Campbell, for this week's episode. Welcome back to The Self-Made Theory. You've probably read in some articles lately about how AI or artificial intelligence is going to replace many jobs. Well, I've been doing some reading up on the future of jobs, so I invited Dr. Eva Balanvanuk, a senior business and thought leader, onto the podcast to discuss this pretty important topic. Dr. Eva holds the role of Executive Director of ICT and Digital Government for South Australia and has held other senior roles such as the State Director for Microsoft. We cover a lot of interesting topics and it relates to both business leaders and employees. We talk about as a leader through times of change, you need to provide hope, trust, empathy and stability for your people. We talk about who's responsible for educating people in times of such radical change. Is it government's responsibility? Is it the employer's responsibility? Or is it employee's responsibility? We talk about regardless of whether you're a corporation or social enterprise, you have to compete with everybody else to get a dollar out of somebody's pocket. We discuss why diversity is important in technology organisations, and we look at what's the right training model in a world of such great change. Is it uni? Is it vocational? Is it on the job? Or is it just in time? We also cover a lot of other things. We talk about the impact of NDIS. We talk about the freedom of speech. There's a lot going on in this episode. My name is Ben Campbell, and this is The Self-Made Theory. Dr. Eva, welcome to The Self-Made Theory. Thank you, Ben. I'm really glad that uh, we've got you on the podcast. Uh, We've known each other for a few years now. Probably, I think, we met when you were the State Director of Microsoft, but you don't hold that role anymore. You hold quite a senior role here inside of the South Australian government. Uh, Perhaps you could just explain uh, that for us. Yeah, thanks, Ben. So my role in SA Government, I'm the Executive Director for ICT and Digital Government in the Department of the Premier and Cabinet. And in a nutshell, that means my team is responsible for whole of government technology, digital and cybersecurity services for the whole of government, as well as the assurance and governance that goes around that. So just a small role. Yeah, then, just a small role. Particularly given in context of what's happening inside of industry and the whole digitisation conversation that's happening in almost every industry as well as government. I imagine it's a pretty big task. It's actually a fascinating role and mm. I'm really excited. I mean, you're right, we did meet when I was at Microsoft and I've kind of accidentally been in the technology sector um, for my career, which has been great fun. And what I love about the tech sector is actually what it enables. So many people are in love with the technology and the widget itself, Mm -hmm. which is great, and we need people who are passionate about those specific solutions. I love it because of what it can achieve. Mm -hmm. And so I really think that my team, we can become such an enabler for government uh, to help modernise the public service, to transform the way that citizens and businesses deal with us and the way that we operate internally because, you know, we government has been a bit of a laggard in terms of adopting new technologies. Part of the challenge is working out, well, how do we actually use them within Mm -hmm. the government context? Uh, But so many opportunities to make a positive impact. So how you can use them both internally as as well as engagement with citizens? Absolutely. Mm. It's a pretty big organisation, government, and if we were thinking about it in terms of it being a corporation, how many people inside of government effectively are you delivering to? 
It, it's around 100,000 people. It's so huge. It's actually, you know, just a bit smaller than Microsoft. So, you know, I've been <laughs> in one big machine most of my life and I'm in another really big machine. But government certainly is quite complex because mm. there is no one overarching chief executive, one overarching chief financial officer. Um, there's, you know, there's each agency reports to its individual minister. The yep. ministers are part of cabinet. So in terms of kind of the reporting structure, it's it's very different and each agency is, you know, really dedicated to its own core function. And so our way of, I guess, delivering those core services is we have to be consultative. We have to engage. We have to understand. I think the era of mandates, um, it's, it's not appropriate. And so we're in the wonderful, tricky position of having to modernise services, but also offer more choice to agencies because they do have more choice these days. And how do we do it in a way, though, that doesn't break, I guess, the integrity of government systems? Mm. And that's the challenge because if this was a corporation, the CEO could say, this is what we're doing and suck it up, people. That's the way it's going to happen, uh, whereas that can't happen inside of government. And is that part of the reason perhaps why I think you referenced before about government being slow in terms of the adoption? Is that part of the reason, do you think? I think government, government certainly the intent is to do good things. Mm. And what you have is you have different people and different ministers and they've got their own priorities and their own outcomes they have to drive. And so, you know, and we are in an environment of constraint. So, and, you know, my boss frequently tells me we're never going to have all the money we want to do, all the great things we want to do. Mm. That's that's the reality of it. So it's understanding how do we in an environment that is um, sometimes fragmented, how do I focus on understanding the needs of each of those individual agencies and how to support them as best we can, knowing that there are differences, that the big agencies, they have more capabilities than very small agencies, but at a fundamental layer, there are some commonalities about what they could use. Mm. So why you? I mean, I know that the government did a nationwide search uh, looking for the right person to fill this role. Why did they choose you, do you think? That's a great question, Ben. Um, I'm delighted they chose me because I'm loving (laughs) the challenge. I know a lot of your team are delighted too, so that's a good thing. So what was very interesting is that it was a very rigorous uh, selection process Mm. um, and for very good reason. Uh, And because when you have a senior role that potentially has this influence across government and ability to impact change, you need to hire the right person. And, you know, when I went through the process, I was actually before I I knew that I had the job, I was actually really happy because I felt I had the opportunity through that process to present me. Who am I essentially? What kind of a leader am I? How do I think about people? What are my capabilities? And so I felt that if they didn't choose me, then I wasn't the right person for the job and that was fine. But I'm hoping that the complement of the skills I have, my values, I had to do a psychometric Mm. assessment that I think played a role in the selection process. And I'm, I'm really enjoying it. You know, I think I've made the transition from private to public sector quite well. Yes, there are bits that perplex me, um, but that's <laughs> fine too. Um, and I think sometimes it's really great to kind of ask why with the intent of really understanding, not to dismiss, but to understand, well, why does it work this way? And if that's the case, is there a way to do it better mm. that we haven't maybe attempted or thought of before? Mm. 
keen to perhaps understand a little bit about your background, given that effectively you're in STEM and you're a woman in leadership, and they are really important topics uh, in the world today. Perhaps can you sort of unpack a little bit about your history so that people understand how you got to be in such a great position today? Oh, look, I think everyone's individual career path is a fascinating story. I'm not sure there are many people who have such a clear idea at the age of five, they want to be X and <laughs> their path magically goes that way. Um, I, I really remember as a child just wanting to be happy. I didn't have a particular career aspiration. Um, and when I was uh, in high school, uh, my dad actually asked a close friend in the professional world to, to effectively do a, a kind of a questionnaire to help me work out which sector might I be best suited to. And actually came out with uh, hospitality and tourism, so right. which I think was quite interesting. I did a marketing degree at the University of South Australia and uh, I joined a student organisation at uni, ISEC, and that was fabulous because it opened up the world to me. So my first, I guess, real job was as an intern in Vienna in Microsoft. And that's how I started my professional career. And that was accidental that it was Vienna in Austria and accidental that it was Microsoft. But as I said, I've I've stayed in the sector and I stayed with Microsoft for almost 15 years mm. in a number of countries and different roles because I love what technology can do. And I'm also used to, even in a big organisation, being in a really small team that has to do a lot of things on the smell of an oily rag. You know, not all parts of companies are resourced the same. The part of Microsoft that I was part of made a loss for many, many, many years. And so the years that we kind of finally turned a profit in Microsoft was a cause for great celebration. But we'd been used to operating with very few resources and having to be very creative and use bricolage really to think about how do we combine resources in new and different ways to get the outcomes we wanted. I've in many cases been supported by both my uh, female and male managers, senior managers, which has been fabulous. Uh, Microsoft working in the tech sector, it's a pretty gender diverse business. But I would say being in the tech sector, we don't have enough diversity. And it's not just gender diversity, it's diversity of ideas, of perspectives, of backgrounds. Because I'm of the firm belief, if we've got the tech sector, which is has got such an influence over every aspect of our lives, Ben, and yet only a small group is crafting and dictating what that technology looks like, and yet they're not representative of our population, I think we've got a problem. Mm, yeah, agreed. Yeah, absolutely. You've done some you know, post-grad studies too. You did a PhD. Um, what drove you to do that? So I certainly didn't anticipate that I would do that. Um, it was lots of fun. I'd been with Microsoft um, around nine years. So I'd had five years in Vienna and then four years in Singapore. And actually my husband was looking at doing some further study in Australia. And so he got a PhD scholarship um, and there'd been a lot of change at Microsoft. And I was really thinking, you know, what is my impact? What is the contribution I'm making? So I decided that I would give it a crack too. I had to do honours first. Um, so I came back and did, we both moved back to Australia. I did honours at the University of South Australia, which was fabulous. Um, and then I did my PhD at the University of Adelaide. And that was quite a shock. If you want to do honours or a PhD, you have to write an, a letter of application to the mm -hmm. university. You have to explain what your topic is why it's important, and you have to cite uh, academic papers. I tell you, I got a bunch of academic papers and I couldn't even get through the first paragraph because it was so dense with about 15 different concepts and footnotes and asterisks. And I'm like, oh, my God, I can't even work my way through this intellectually. And it just proves that when you give something a good go, you get used to style, you get used to thinking about ideas in a, in a more challenging manner, in a more critical manner. 
And um, I really loved it. I loved that my brain was being stretched mm. again, I guess, in directions that hadn't had the opportunity mm. to do so. So what was your study on? So I looked at entrepreneurship and innovation. And so my honours thesis and my, well, my PhD was an extension of my honours thesis, was looking at the strategic concepts or ideas that drive the business model strategy of non-profit social enterprises. So in a nutshell, how do these non-profit social enterprises, how do they stay financially viable? Australia does not have a great philanthropic culture. The US has a great philanthropic culture. And, you know, we look at some of the greats like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Warren Buffett, they're giving away billions of dollars. And it's not just at that super high level, it's wealthy, but more regular Mm. Americans have a culture of philanthropy. So I was really concerned when I was speaking then to these, uh, the chief executives of these these social enterprises, I realised it's such a fragile ecosystem. Each social enterprise is absolutely dedicated to meeting the needs of a really particular group in society that are vulnerable, disadvantaged. And if they shut down, if they can't survive financially, that group is just unsupported. And that's a loss to society. So I wanted to understand how did they really craft their way of generating revenue? It was a kind of no-brainer in the end because if you think about an organisation like Nutrition Australia, so they've obviously got a body of knowledge around nutrition and health and so they started to generate funds by advising new shopping centres and their food halls and, and giving, you know, how many stars of healthiness were the, were the foods here and consulting using that body of expertise. Um, and then others like, you know, uh, Bedford and Minda, how we've got people who have who want to contribute to society and do so in a respected manner that, you know, is dignified well, they've got supported work opportunities. So each of these kind of social enterprises found their niche but in a, in a way that was really complementary to their mission and it has to be complementary mm. because otherwise there'd be a dissonance and the public would say, hang on a second, why would, you know, for example, the Salvation Army, imagine if they sold home brew kits. Oh, my gosh, like there would be uproar. It's an anathema to their value yep. set. So many social enterprises have kind of figured this out intuitively um, and more and more are being creative and finding new ways to generate funds for Mm. their organisation. It's a bit of a challenge, isn't it, because really there's competition with industry. There's Mm. competition with fundamentally almost every part of society because there's only $1.00. Uh, that's that it's right. got to be shared around and so in somebody's pocket. So whether they spend that on social enterprise, whether they spend it on you know, some other purchase or acquisition or, you know, or whittle it away on something else, uh, they've got to compete. And so the, I imagine the challenge is making sure that they maintain their integrity around how they compete for that dollar. Absolutely. And the interesting or exciting thing is what is the role that technology can play in helping mm. these social enterprises stay afloat? Because many of them have operated on a you know, a very uh, fragile grant-based system, year-by-year funding. They haven't had the opportunity to invest in, I guess, what we would call back-end systems to automate their processes. So, for example, the NDIS has had a really significant impact on those providers in the disability provision sector, particularly starting with young children. Yeah. Because if, if you're an organisation that's gotten out has a, had a paper-based system and maybe it, because you've had a grant funding method, you've only issued maybe 10 invoices a month and all of a sudden you have to engage digitally with a portal and you're issuing hundreds of invoices a month or a week, um, you have to change and upgrade your systems. And so in a way we've got some external environmental factors like the NDIS, that's effectively forcing nonprofits and social enterprises to really reconsider their business model and how do they operate and I guess force an investment mm. in technology to, to just help them stay alive. Mm. 
It's a pretty fascinating space and uh, I'm doing some work with uh, a small social enterprise startup and challenges around working with NDIS is enormous for them, right? And you can just see that it's not necessarily NDIS's fault, it's all those other things that sit behind it. It can certainly be a challenge. One of the things I really wanted to talk about today was future of jobs. Um, You've written some uh, papers uh, on that and some articles on that and uh, I wanted to perhaps unpack a little bit to World Economic Forum's uh, report that they did recently. And when we look at that, there's some pretty key themes that which we often really know about, you know, the top roles that are growing or predicted to grow over the next few years, you know, those that are declining. And so when we look at those, you know, the top five emerging roles are things like data analysts and scientists, AI machine learning specialists, software and application developers and analysts, et cetera, sales and marketing professionals, which was interesting. And then declining roles are those, you know, replicable jobs, the data entry clerks, the accounting bookkeeping and payroll clerks. Um, admin, executive secretaries, etc. We obviously see that in South Australia. We've seen a lot of you know, job changes over the years, particularly with manufacturing disappearing and other things. What's required from a government perspective right, to support the future of jobs? It's a really big question mm. and it's a really big challenge and I think I don't know that anyone's got the answers, but regardless, we have to have a crack. I, I'd like to, there's a great quote by uh, a futurist called Alvin Toffler And he wrote a book in 1970, would you believe, called Future Shock. And he defined future shock as too much change in too short a time period. Now, if he said that in 1970 and we're almost 2020, I mean, the, the pace of change is just accelerating. And so I think what's different about this particular industrial revolution, so the World Economic Forum has kind of called it the fourth industrial revolution, is one of the the important points in that report is that It explains that over the last three revolutions, as a society, we actually had a bit of luxury of time. You know, before, you know, Steambeat was everywhere and before computers were everywhere, we had maybe 20 or 30 years to kind of get our heads around the concept and to then adjust accordingly. We just don't have that luxury of time anymore. And so when you, you know, shared those growing professions, absolutely, we we have a dearth of around one and a half million cybersecurity professionals around the world. And that gap's going to get bigger. Mm. But what's getting interesting is how do we think about if we've got people who are performing valuable jobs right now, but that job doesn't really have a future, how do we help people have the um, the courage but also the confidence and develop the competence in new areas that we really, really need? So if we take, for example, cybersecurity, we absolutely need people who've gone to university and done a degree to really understand it and do the research in that space. But in, for you and me in a company... I actually could have someone who does a cert for at TAFE in cybersecurity and I give them new skills every six months and I keep them up to speed. To me, that is just as valuable. So I think we also need to reframe the tertiary sector and the value of different kinds of qualifications. I obviously have a PhD, so I've gone to university, um, but there is equal value coming out of the vocational education sector that I think as a society and a community, we have to place greater value on that and not just say to our kids, yep, you have to go to university, that's the path to get a job. Actually, for some people, a better path is vocational training. In Mm -hmm. fact, it's going to get me into a more interesting, better paid job quicker than if I go to university. So the role of government in that is absolutely to really support our vocational training sector, but also to ensure that those courses that are being developed are relevant to the employer. Um, You know, I'm on an advisory board with Flinders University in their science space, really looking at, well, what capabilities do we want graduates to have so that they are job ready? 
Now, this doesn't mean that they have all the domain expertise and knowledge that they need, but do they have a mindset around problem solving? Are they are they willing to be creative and challenge the, the status quo? Do they have emotional intelligence? You know, are they are they able to work collaboratively with others? Because these are actually the skills that we need. And do they have learnability? as a core capability, which means say, oh, not saying, thank God, I've graduated, I'm done, never have to learn again. Actually, all of us have to keep mm. learning all the time. So government's got a really big role in helping to reframe. We've got amazing value coming out of our university sector and we need to protect and grow that. But we also need to uplift the value and the perception of our vocational training sector because sometimes you know, we can get a shorter on-the-job, you know, just-in-time training could be delivered out of that sector at, at the at the quality that we need. Because, mm. I, I mean, the challenge in a lot of this tech space is how quickly it's changing. And so what you learned at university four years ago, in terms of the pure technical side of that course, is likely to have changed dramatically in four years. But it's the other elements that you talked about before in terms of how they work, those are the skills that will carry them forward forever. Absolutely. But let's also not discount there is huge value in people gaining that deep technical experience because once they've really understood a technical domain, they'll pick up and learn and adapt. So so let's not give up on, mm. on learning domain knowledge because otherwise we're going to have a, a generation of a new generation of kids who say, well, I can do everything on an app and I don't actually need to know how coding works because I can just drag and drop, you know, I'm using Scratch or something. No, we need, we still need people to really delve deep into understanding this. But I think it's also understanding that just because you're a technical genius um, doesn't mean you're going to be successful if you can't work well with people. Mm. It's that human element. And I'm actually so excited about this industrial revolution because I think it gives us an opportunity to harness what makes us unique as humans. You know, we don't have to do the, the dull, repetitive work that a machine can do with way better accuracy than we can. We still need humans overseeing it and checking it and setting the ethics into that and the guidelines um, and we can't abdicate our responsibility as humans to machines. That's very scary. And we can have a conversation about the ethics too because that's fascinating. I was going to pick up on that point because that yeah. that's a big piece, right? And that's the piece that I think most people are challenged with. Whose ethics? Who, whose ethics, exactly. Mm. If I was very fortunate, I heard uh, Dr Simon Longstaff, so he's the Chief Executive of the Ethics Centre in Australia, and he gave a fascinating talk at a, a blockchain conference I was at earlier this week and he made some really interesting comments around the fact that as we are identifying these new emerging technologies that are incredibly exciting and they do allow us to solve problems in new ways, that we at the same time we're really conscious of building the ethical infrastructure that matches the technical infrastructure. Mm. And he kind of said, well, you know, look at what's happening around us. Look at, you know, the some royal commissions that happened, have happened recently. They shake our confidence in, in the ethics of how things run or our sporting heroes. Um, and he, he talked about this really interesting concept called moral injury, which I'd never heard of. But he said, imagine that you were on the witness stand in that royal commission into the finance and banking industry and you were the person that had to admit that your institution had been charging dead people fees mm. for services he said, those people are now at great risk of really having mental health issues because they're saying, well, that's not my ethics. How did I suddenly end up in a place where that was somehow deemed as okay? I think we need to have a great deal of empathy for these people who've, who've found themselves in a situation that is probably personally quite horrifying to them. Um, and, and just because we can do something certainly does not mean we should. Mm. And that's the challenge for technology, isn't it? Because the ethics aren't built in necessarily into the way in which you know, technology works and the way in which we serve. 
Whereas people, those ethics are still there, even if they're different from one person to the next, there are still a bunch of cultural norms and acceptances that when you're dealing one-on-one with people uh, are often there. And then I think, you know, if I, you know, what I appreciate about being at Microsoft is the current CEO, Satya Nadella, he's really been very explicit around developing artificial intelligence and maintaining an ethical basis in that. And I think to have leaders who are very explicit around this is fascinating. And if we look at some of the other big ones, on the other hand, I read a great article that said, well, actually, who gave Mark Zuckerberg the authority to determine what free speech looks like mm. on the planet? No one gave him that right, but it's emerged. And and I think we re- that's why I say this, this permeation of technology through every aspect of our lives, we need to think about the ethics of it, but who is governing it? Who is who is making these decisions around what is the right thing to do? And and I'm so impressed by, you know, Jacinta Arden, who's come out in the last week around the horrific events in Christchurch mm-hmm. and said, the one thing we do not give to this person is notoriety. Absolutely. He shall remain nameless. Instead, mm-hmm. let's honour the victims. And so we, we, we I think we need to start challenging how do we want to live as a society? Mm-hmm. So thinking about the ethics piece, and particularly perhaps in organisational settings, um, it's very easy, I think, for organisations to not look too far forward in terms of their uh, ability to change and grow their workforce um, with with the change uh, that's happening inside of their industry. Uh, And you talk a little bit about uh, agile lifelong learning and that being part of that. What do organisations need to do today, do you think, to make sure that they are ready for change? And it's not just a matter of, well, the world's changed and sorry, thanks for being with us for 10 years, but your job's now gone. Where do you think their responsibility lies and what what do you think they can do about that? I think organisations can do a huge amount. That World Economic Forum uh, Jobs of the Future or Future of Jobs report, rather, that really did an interesting thing. It looked at organisations who viewed human resources and people and culture at the level of the senior executive leadership team of the organisation. So say, for example, that that person, so the chief human resource officer or the chief director of people and culture, is at the same table as the chief executive and their direct reports. Organisations who had placed a real understanding and emphasis on their people were those who crafted training, they understood the capabilities of their people, and also they did some future workforce planning. I think organisations have not been strong at future workforce planning. There has been this attitude of, well, if I don't have the people now, I'll find them. But quite frankly, everyone's trying to find them and those people don't exist. We've got to create them. And again, back to the ethical dilemma, the Future of Jobs report outlined that those roles that are at greatest risk of automation are those are those where women, women are the majority um, in that group's administration and lower level management. Many women are in those jobs because those jobs afford flexibility. I can come in and out of the workforce with family or caring responsibilities. My super is then lower. I might have been out of the workforce at a critical point when suddenly maybe somehow email was introduced or a new tool was introduced in the organisation and I'm unfamiliar with that. So I think organisations have a double duty to really focus on those people at the at the more vulnerable end and identify if we can't just move them on because that's not the right thing to do, how do we help to develop their skills so that they can provide new value in ways that actually adds value to them, it keeps them employable. And, you know, when you couple that with this horrible um, statistic that actually the fastest growing group of homeless people in our country are women over 55. Yeah, I heard that. I read it's, that somewhere. Well, I can't remember where I read that, but... Um, the Council of the Ageing and there's also mm. a federal commissioner into ageing. They've done a lot of research into this and it's really tragic because 
Um, and actually, uh, Jane Caro gave a great uh, speech about this at the International Women's Day Breakfast in Adelaide a couple of weeks ago, where she said those women, because she said it was fascinating, she was part of that first wave of women who actually didn't have to feel ashamed of having a job. Mm. She said before the 60s, if a woman worked, it's actually because she had to and she was pitied. And I feel so incredibly grateful that I'm part of a generation of women where, no, it's expected, go out and work and and have ambition and do great things and, and give back. But she said those women who kind of followed the rules and then they went and had children and and then they were out of the workforce and then they went back into the workforce and then their parents got sick, they went out again, that because they've come in and out and maybe a marriage broke down, they've got almost no super, they can't access the pension until they're 67 and they are living in cars. And these women, these this cohort have such value because it's like we discount the fact that, you know, running a household and bringing up a family doesn't require skills. Oh, my gosh, you need yes, to be does. completely, you know, <laughs> think of the organisational skills these people have and the ability to multitask. So I think back to the our perception of TAFE, our perception of, of ageism, it is a thing, it exists. And uh, how do we as employers make sure we retain these people? We don't, we don't add to any, you know, further distress they may have in their lives, but we help give them new opportunities to stay engaged and be able to contribute. Mm. Do you think organisations get it? I mean, we talk about, you know, the war on talent, right? So you mentioned before, you know, organisations being a little bit blind and going, well, if I don't have the talent, I'll just go and get it. And at some point when that talent is scarce, it becomes a bit of a war, which obviously means you pay a lot more. Clearly, I think there's a case for saying if I invest in my people now, it's going to return for me as an, at an organisation at a profit level, probably much better uh, than it is uh, if I don't do that because I'm not going to pay redundancies. I'm not going to have that change over in workforce, which then you know, costs a lot of time and money. Given that a lot of organisations don't get that, how do we get that message out there? Is that a government's responsibility to get that message out there? Is it, is it organisations just waking up one day uh, and getting that to understanding that message? I think there's actually a bit of a coalition of the willing who understand this is a challenge. Yeah. So I think the um, the AICD, Australian Institute of Company Directors, I think they certainly understand it at a director level. What questions are directors asking their chief executives and their senior leadership teams around their ability for that organisation to continue into the future? And workforce capability is a massive part of that. So the AICD certainly understands it. I think universities are actually picking up on professional education. So as a, how do we bring professionals in to train them? Um, I think there's still a bit of an attitude, and I remember one of my bosses telling me, said, oh, said, but what if I train my people and they leave? And the HR manager says, but what if you don't train your people and they don't leave? I mean, that's, that's even worse. It's scarier. Yeah, that's it's right. It's scarier. So, you know, and, and I think, the, you know, I, I don't know, my philosophy is, well, we've got to develop our people because we have to help them develop to their best potential because that will be actually a benefit to me and to the community. And guess what? If they find another job that is fabulous and gives them opportunity to grow good for them. You know, we've still benefited from that. Um, And that's how you become an employer of choice, which is by providing these opportunities. And, you know, at Microsoft, and I think government has the same perception, 70% of learning is on the job. It's what you do every day. It's how you learn new skills, 20% through mentoring and coaching, and 10% is through formal education. So again, 
it's not just the owners of companies, it's also managers. If you're a frontline manager and you are maybe not confident in your skin and you maybe feel that someone on your team might be more capable of you and you feel threatened, your motivation to help your people, to train your people is probably not high. So we really need to speak to managers and, and get to first, you know, new managers, frontline managers about the real value in training people. And let's hire the smartest people. Hire someone smarter than me. Awesome. I've hired amazingly smart people in my in my career. And I'm hoping one day I will get to report to them because they're 20 years younger than me. So they'll be growing. So I think there's a confidence issue too. And a, let's not feel threatened that maybe other people have different capabilities mm. than us. And I think particularly in the context of lifelong learning, we don't just learn in a vacuum, right? We learn when we hire really smart people and they may have skills and capabilities that you don't. Well, guess what? You will be a better leader, a better person as we as you learn from those people that you hire. I think the rate of change is going to drive people to do more in this space. Uh, I think one of the challenges leaders have, and whether that's a CEO or whether that's in government, is that the tenure is not often a long time, three years, four years. And so to think and focus on a workforce transformation that might happen in five or six years or 10 years is less likely than if it's going to happen in one or two years. And so I think the rate of change is probably going to accelerate people waking up and thinking that they have to do something about it. It's a bit of a burning platform. Yeah, like how do we How do we get people to get a sense of urgency? I have, a, I think, a natural bias for action. I'm a bit impatient. <laughs> but I also know when I have to be patient um, and, you know, speaking with my colleagues around culture and how do we how do we build a culture that really supports and recognises high performance and, and ethics and the right behaviour, it takes a long time. It takes a lot of persistence. Conversely, a poor leader can destroy a culture very quickly and we, we've seen that in, in the world. Um, but I, I did come across some really interesting research the Gallup Institute did and it would have been in the early 2000s. They spoke to 10,000 people to understand what are the needs of followers so when you're following a leader, what do I as a follower need? And they found four things, hope, trust, empathy, and stability. So when a leader can provide those four things, I am prepared to absolutely follow that person. And so when I think about my people and my managers in my team, how do I help to make them aware? And we've actually crafted a fabulous people manager training program um, in, in DPC with some of my peers to really, and there is a big focus in the public sector now around how do we develop our frontline managers? Because the more skills and knowledge we can equip our people managers with, the better they'll be. Because, you know, people join great companies and leave awful managers. And yeah. I've escaped a micromanager and it was a horrible experience. So I don't want to have that kind of scenario in my organisation. So you know, how do we give people hope or purpose? How do we provide stability? And it is a lot of change. So there's lots going on. How do I provide a, a thread that runs through? I'm empathetic. You know, I'm approachable. I'm authentic. I understand my people's needs and they feel they can trust me mm. because I demonstrate that my behaviour, I'm consistent and I follow through. And if, if we can help our managers do those things, I think that will help our culture. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, if that was in early 2000, here we are, you know, 15, 18 years later in a time where more change promotes more instability uh, and, you know, it certainly erodes hope for a lot of people um, in terms of either their own careers or the things that are happening around them in their organisation. Those things would be even more important. People would be even more hyper aware that that's what they need. Absolutely. And there is a difference between a manager and a leader. They have very different functions, which Agreed. are both equally important, but anyone is a leader. If you have people who will follow and listen to you that you can persuade and share ideas with and they're kind of on your side and they get on your bus, you don't have to be a manager of anyone. So I think everyone has the capacity to think about how do I bring people on that journey? 
And, you know, I think, you know, we talked about your passion project being this awesome experience and conversation. My passion project is is helping young girls really understand that we're having visible role models of women in the tech sector that they can actually say, well, actually, maybe I can expand my horizons and I don't have to be a hairdresser or a beauty therapist because more options are visible to me. Mm. And is that what Her Tech Path is all about? Yeah, yeah, it is. So I started that about two years ago and it kind of was just an idea of, well, surely there are lots of women working in this in the tech sector and, you know, surely there's something we can do to, to promote how great it is and the impact that you can have. And uh, so Kelly, um, whom you interviewed a couple of weeks ago, she's, yep. she's part of her tech path. And so we agreed that there are kind of two core things that we're doing because you can't fix the world right in 10 minutes. So <laughs> let's start small and be a bit modest and, and do, do something achievable. So one is is actually creating an opportunity for women in the tech sector to network um, there's kind of lots of, I guess, anecdotal and other research that shows women don't actually network. They don't see the value in networking. Um, and it's less about who you know, it's more about who knows you actually in terms mm. of getting your next job or getting an assignment. And so we provide a, a kind of an informal networking opportunity for women. Many of them have their own startup or work in a startup or in a big organisation. So that's one aspect of it. But the second one is actually we go out to high schools and we we go and speak to girls and we give a briefing. And our first one was amazing. It was at Lefevre High School and we ran it in their pastoral care session. So about 250 girls from year 8 to year 11. And this was our first one. So we quite didn't know what we were doing and they didn't know what to expect from us. But you know what? When we asked the question of, well, what would you do if Facebook shut down? Oh, my gosh. Well, that created a stir from girls who that's part of their social interaction. We Mm. talked about then the value of technology. They were curious about how did we get to the jobs that we were in? Um, How did we... How do we deal with the different challenges? Had we faced discrimination? Had we, how do we balance a family? Um, and then at the end, a couple of girls came up and said, look, thank you so much for showing that there are more opportunities than just hairdressing and beauty. Yeah, brilliant. And I was just staggered because, you know, I guess, you know, I've grown up a very fortunate childhood and background and my parents are still married to each other. So that's not that, you know, not that <laughs> common these days. But there are girls who don't see that there is a, a future for them in, in a non-traditional space. So, yeah, so we did about 18 briefings in our first big stint and we, we spoke to around 1,600 girls. And so we're, we're about to launch actually officially in June, which is very exciting and have a, a an online, because you've got to use technology these days, Ben, and I was the bottleneck. It was very manual to, to make it all happen. But now an automated booking system where a school can go online and, and book for a session with us um, on hertechpath.org. And then we've got about 100 volunteers. Um, and so someone, a group will come to your school and and be a visible role model to girls and answer questions in a really safe environment about, you know, what could you be doing in your future? Yeah, brilliant. That's fantastic. It sort of leads into what I wanted to talk about in terms of personal responsibility uh, for lifelong learning because we've talked a little bit about what governments should do. We've talked uh, a reasonable amount about what corporations should do. But where does the responsibility lie for individuals? Because they can't just sit there and wait for people to do stuff, give them training, give them a career path. If you're talking to people who are in jobs that are potentially at risk, according to the World Economic Forum's report, what's your recommendation to them? So I think my first recommendation is that we, we have a lot to answer for as a society because unfortunately this message of the fourth industrial revolution and automation has been packaged up with a lot of fear. Yeah. You know, the robots are taking over and you know, a report that was actually being now seen as maybe not as accurate, it originally claimed that up to 40% of jobs will change or, you know, die over the next 10 years. And it was turned out actually it's only about 16%. But I'm not sure that that second message got through and people get really scared. And when people get scared, they're actually not open to learning. Mm. So I think we actually need to say, look, 
as an individual, yes, we are all responsible for our own career. We're unfortunately not entitled to anything. You know, we have a lot of obligations as, as a citizen and we have our own responsibilities to family or children or partners or the community. And so I think it's about also not feeling panicked. All of us can do something. If you, Even if you're just curious about, well, what does artificial intelligence actually mean? Or when we talk about ethics, what does it mean? Just find some articles. Just start to read. You can take small steps. It doesn't mean you need to go and do a new bachelor's degree in something. Maybe there is a short course online. There are so many of these MOOCs, the massive online open college courses that you could do. There's free stuff from like Harvard and Stanford and of really interesting topics. So I think you've got to, you know, think about what you're interested in, what fascinates you, and just start learning a little bit. And don't make it so overwhelming that you can't manage the rest of your life because it just gets exhausting and we stop. But if you can kind of make it fun and weave it into something you're interested about. And I think the great thing is because as we move into automation, as I said, that human element becomes stronger. So anyone who's got great experience in emotional intelligence or dealing with challenging conversations or you know understanding how people tick, great customer service, these are things that robots can't really do, right? Um, empathy is something that we haven't trained a machine to do. Um, teaching others, being a great role model. These are things that humans do exceptionally well. So I think we can all think about what are our strengths being a human? Let's capitalise on them, but also get curious about what it means. What does automation mean and what might happen to my job? And look out to see are there mergers happening? Are Is there some financial concerns in some industries? Be a bit curious about your own sector, but also think about how might my skills be transferable to a new sector? Mm. And I bet your bottom dollar, a lot of it is. Mm. So I think be open-minded and please don't be scared. Be be hopeful about what's possible. I presented to a, well, I ran a training session for about 50, over 50s people uh, last Saturday. And as part of the uh, Fed Government's Be Connected program. And one of the things we talked about was change has always been there. And so you know, I put up some really interesting pictures around, you know, people sitting on the train, you know, with their phones, you know, with their heads plugged into their phones. And we think that people are, you know, antisocial. And then I found a photo of some, you know, back in 1950 of people sitting on the train all with their face in a newspaper. Um, change happens, right? It just does. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be scary. Uh, and the more I think we know and understand, the more comfortable we're going to be with the change that's coming. So... Brilliant. Very exciting. Thank you so much for joining us. I know you're super busy, so we'll might wrap it up there. But uh, thank you very much. We appreciate your time. Thank you, Ben. It's been a great conversation. Cheers. Thanks, Eva. It sure is a pretty interesting time in the world, regardless of whether you're an employer or an employee. I think the key takeaway from our discussion with Eva and a topic that I'm really passionate about is don't wait for change to happen before you do something about changing who you are or what your business does. Start now. You might be able to use it as a competitive differentiator and don't leave it until it's too late. If you want to find out more about Eva or her tech path, head over to our website, www.theselfmadetheory.com. 